Hello, I'm Chris Kreitcho, and this is the New Rust Station podcast, a show about learning the Rust programming language. This is Interview 3, Carol Golding. Hi, Carol. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So we are going to talk about a whole bunch of things with Carol today, including things like putting on Rust conferences, which frankly sounds like, I don't know, the most intimidating thing I can ever imagine doing. (laughs) Conferences are hard, Uh, but also how she got into Rust, all sorts of things like that. So just for starters, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into programming, all that? I mean, if you have any cats, things like that. (laughs) Yes, I have my cat on my lap right now. Um, Her name's Baby. I got into programming. We had an Atari when I was growing up. Um, And I remember having a book of basic programs that you would type into into the computer from the book. And it was fun to like change things and see what how the different results you would get. And then I, I, my high school had some uh, programming classes, which was awesome. That is awesome. (laughs) Mine did yeah, not. <laughs> still, yeah, and it's still pretty rare, which mm-hmm. is unfortunate. So then I decided to major in computer science in college, and then I got a job at an enterprise search company, Vismo, which got bought by IBM. And I that was kind of web development, but it was a little strange because most of my programming was in XSL, which is kind of this niche <laughs> programming language that is yeah. really only good for transforming XML. It's mm-hmm. really good at that, but that's the only thing it's good at. But the data for the search results was in XML, and then we used XSL to make HTML to display them. So hmm. a decent chunk of my professional development experience is in XSL, which is kind of strange. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> So at that company, I had a friend, a coworker who was interested in Ruby and Rails, and he managed mm. to sneak in Ruby and RSpec so that we could test our, our UI because we broke things all the time. <laughs> As <laughs> and, one does when writing yes. XSL. <laughs> yes. And Ruby was, and testing was glorious. Um, like line numbers meant something again, and the tests kept us from breaking things and Uh, So that got me really excited about Ruby. And eventually he was able to sneak in a Rails app as well. So then I got into Rails. And eventually I decided I didn't want to do XSL anymore. I wanted to do (laughs) Rails. So I got a different job doing Rails stuff. So I've been doing Rails since about 2011. I've had two Rails jobs since then. My most recent was at Think Through Math, um, an education startup in Pittsburgh. Hmm. They do uh, like remedial math tutoring through a Rails app. And a lot of my work there was improving performance, which tended to be database queries and things like that. But sometimes it was um, we were using a lot of memory. So that kind of got me interested in I, I love making things faster. So that kind of leads into how I got into Rust. Mm-hmm. At some point, it was like, OK, if I want to make my Ruby faster, I'm going to have to go down a level. But I'm terrified of C. <laughs> Absolutely terrified. Like I should, I should be nowhere near production C, <laughs> um, and that was around the time when Rust started to be a thing. And I heard of it through Steve Klabnik. So Steve used to live in Pittsburgh, and I got to know him when he lived here, and we both did Ruby stuff. But then he moved away, and he came home for Christmas one year and hung out with Ruby people, and he was talking about this new programming language, Rust, and it sounded pretty neat. But I didn't look into it then. Until a year later when he came home for Christmas again, and he was still talking about Rust. (laughs) 
And Steve is very much a, um, he gets excited by new shiny things mm-hmm. all the time. And I sympathize. <laughs> yes. Yes. But so when he's talking about something, the same thing for over a year, like that, that's a good sign that it's, it's pretty exciting. Yeah. If it can hold Steve's attention for that long. So yeah, then I started looking into it and he, he had started a book called Rust for Rubius at that mm-hmm. point, which has sort of morphed into his work on the Rust programming language. So like that book is not, has not been updated and is not a really a, a supported thing anymore, but that kind of got me into it. And it's been really fun to be able to write super fast code without having to be scared all the time. <laughs> yeah, I can sympathize with that. The first, yeah. what was it, six years of my career, I was writing a mix of things in different contexts, but pretty much constantly my main main job or main contracts were C and some C++ with the occasional bit of Python thrown in. And the amount of time, and I say this regularly on the show, so listeners won't be yeah. surprised, but the amount of time I spent chasing use after free or null pointer, I shouldn't say a null pointer exception because C doesn't have exceptions, but yeah. like <laughs> this is null. What do you mean it's null? Yeah. Yeah. I allocated, oh, the the array isn't low. Oh, I just wrote past the end of an array. Oh, yeah. and in some cases there was very good reason for it to be in C when it's software that goes on an airplane it probably doesn't need to have garbage collection happening when you're, say, trying to land the plane. Yeah. On the other, in some of the other projects, it was just written in C because it was written in C 20 years ago. And the promise of high-performance, safe, not being terrified code is very appealing. We'll, I'll throw in the show notes a link to Julia Evans' talk from RustConf in which she talks yes. about hacking without fear. I can't wait till the video goes up, but just the slides. I'm so excited to see the video. I've heard so many awesome things from people who were there. Yeah. And listening to her talk in general, that's been one of the things that's fun is seeing her say, oh, I can can do systems programming. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that's really exciting about Rust is is the enabling technology part Mm -hmm. of it. It's, It's going to let so many more people do this stuff than could before. Right. And, and, like with C, you just you just get like core dumps and psych vaults and <laughs> just does not help you at all. No. Like, sorry, you did you messed up somewhere. And it's such so different from the Rust compiler error messages that are mm-hmm. so helpful. Uh, I just I love the compiler errors. Yeah. I, Which is a hilarious thing to say, yes. but we all say it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So you mentioned that you you had, had the experience of being got kind of terrified as we were just joking of C and yet you have a CS degree and all of that. So I'm curious, I didn't come from the CS context and every CS program seems to be different. Did you have C in college? And what was that experience like? Because I know some people do, some people don't, et cetera. Yeah, we had, the program was mostly Java, Mm -hmm. but we did have a class or two where we were using C and I was I was lost a lot of the time. Like I understand the concepts. I can say a pointer is an address to data. I understand that. But using them and ampersands and asterisks everywhere, (laughs) sometimes they go before and sometimes they go after. And what, what even, um, what do I have right here? I don't know. It's, it's a thing. I don't like, is it, is it a pointer to a pointer or a pointer to something? I don't, I, it just never really 
I never really got it. I never felt like I understood what was going on. Even, even though I could talk about things like in the abstract. Right. And there was definitely the operating systems class. I just went to the TA's office hours every week and I was like, help. I'm so (laughs) Which at least you did that. I know a lot of people who didn't make that move. Yeah. So yeah, that, that experience, like, scared me off from Mm. trying to learn C and trying to use C for a long time. And, and it's funny now, after I've worked with Rust for a bit, um, I can actually kind of read and understand C better. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say I can write C yet, but (laughs) I'm not totally lost. And I think it's the, it's the ampersand thinking of that as a borrow, like made it click with me. Right. And that's just not a concept that's in C at all. Mm-mm. But if you think about that in that way, then th- something about that made C click for reading at least. I can see that. It gives you tools for reasoning about your code. And the compiler in Rust does a lot of the reasoning for you, but it also teaches you to think in those terms. And yeah. I, I have found that very helpful as well of thinking about the lifetimes of things, yeah. thinking about who owns what, etc. And in a lot of cases, when I was writing C or C++, I was kind of trying to do those kinds of things, but I didn't have a vocabulary for them. Yeah. And vocabulary helps a lot. The Having yeah. ways to hang your hat on things with a word can go a long way in helping you understand what you're trying to do and what you're talking about and where bugs might come up. So that makes a lot of sense to me. And yeah, having like in in C, you have to keep track of all the stuff yourself. You have to keep it all in your head. Whereas I feel like a more modern way, like computers are more powerful now and we've taught them a lot more. It's not 1973. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So we should, we should be, computers are really good at tedious stuff, like keeping track of a whole lot of things. So we should have... Make them do it. (laughs) Right, yeah, which is exactly what the Rust compiler does. It keeps Mm -hmm. track of these things for you and tells you when you've messed up before you get into into runtime, which is another reason why I I have swung to uh, Rust from Ruby is that I am so tired of undefined method on nil. I can't even <laughs> tell you. I if I see that one more time, and like we would get that in production regularly in Ruby, and it's and you just have to track it down, and it could be like three levels away from where you're seeing the error, and if you only see it at runtime because you didn't test that path as hard as you tried. Right. Yeah. You can you can write tests for hours and still miss something, and your customers experience it. But having the compiler catch that at compile time is so exciting. And just like, oh, thank you. You saved me. (laughs) I don't have to deal with this. Yeah. Yeah. Writing JavaScript all day in my day job. uh, Undefined is not an object. Tried to call function on undefined. Mm -hmm. No, why is this undefined? And it shows up in your ray gun logs or whatever else. And you're saying, how did we miss this? And it's infuriating. And having a compiler say, you forgot that you need to check this here. It could come back as nothing. Uh, When I discovered optionals, I was like, you can do this with a type? This this is amazing. Yeah. Yeah, we definitely, in our Rails app at Think Through Math, uh, we had some, like, null object pattern kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. But you still have to, you have to be disciplined enough to use that everywhere. And it's so easy to just, to not, and then, 
check for nil everywhere and mm-hmm. it's just just all over but yeah <laughs> it's so nice to just know through the type system that okay here it's not an option so we definitely have something so we don't have to check for nil mm-hmm. or or the compiler is going to make us check if we do have an option <laughs> so it's yeah. so comforting so as you got going in rust we all probably had mostly the experience of reading something like Rust for Rubius or Rust by Example or the Rust programming language. Where did you go from there as you kept working on learning and what kinds of things have you been building? So one thing I started doing is this project that I made called Rustlings, which Mm -hmm. was sort of a learning exercise and sort of creating a resource for other people. Um, Rustlings is a whole bunch of little examples that don't currently compile and your task is to get them to compile and they try and guide you through different concepts and they try and build on each other and it's definitely incomplete and I could definitely use more examples uh but it was a lot of fun because I I tend to learn through doing Mm -hmm. and and like feeling what what concepts feel like when you change things and and work with things and um I think reading error messages and and responding to them is a huge part uh, it's a huge part of programming in any language but especially in rust because you're going to get compiler error messages this is normal this does not mean you're a bad programmer it's it's the compiler helping you so getting and and the best way to get that experience is to do it a whole bunch and i was trying to do other things like uh, uh, one thing, one of the first things I tried to do, which is still incomplete, is um, write a SAS compiler. Hmm. I have it doing basic SAS, but not not the entire SAS spec. Um, but I would try to, you know, implement nesting, and I would hit a borrow checker error, or I would hit uh, some other sort of error, and. I would get really frustrated because I would have to go learn about what this error was and how to fix it. And um, it felt like it was, it getting, like it was getting in the way. way. So, so I just thought, if I fix this error, it tends to work. Then, then, then I would be able to fix it now and move on with the thing I was actually trying to do. Right. So how can we um, get get that experience outside of, like make time to get experience mm-hmm. fixing those errors so that when I hit them, uh, trying to do something else in something real, do something real. Then I'm like, ah, I know this error. I know how to fix this. That makes sense. So yeah, that's that's my goal with rustlings, and uh, I hope it's been helpful to other people, and I hope people continue to use it and contribute to it because I I think it's useful. I'll make sure we link it in the show notes. Yeah, I think I you, actually I think you might have mentioned it before. I, I have, and I actually used it a, a few of those as oh, I was awesome. working through early on myself. So, hooray! Yay! So what inspired you then to dive into sort of the community aspect of it? I think you're on the Rust community team. I am indeed. Let me preface by explaining for listeners momentarily. Rust has a number of teams and sub teams for developing the language. And one of those is the quote unquote core team, which makes core decisions about the language. They also have sort of the compiler team, which actually implements the language. And then there are these series of other sub teams like the community team, which is responsible for reaching out to other people and trying to build the Rust community and so on. I'll let Carol talk more about that. There's also the documentation sub team, which is trying to work on, well, improving documentation, etc. So there's a way of sort of distributing the work and not making it fall just on the people that Mozilla can afford to pay, etc. But 
how did you end up in the community team and what kinds of things are you guys working on? So I, when I was into Ruby, I helped with the Pittsburgh Ruby meetup a lot. Mm. And eventually that led to running a conference, Steel City Ruby. So I've been involved with uh, gathering people together to talk about programming for a while now. So it was a natural thing for me to help do that with Ross too. I currently have a really casual meetup going in Pittsburgh. We just go to a coffee shop every Wednesday evening and we just bring our projects and talk about uh, and help each other and talk about things. So no presentations, but just kind of uh, hanging around and talking about Rust. And um, I'm helping to organize Rust about Rust, which I'm sure we'll devote a section to that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I was asked to join the community team uh, because of my work with community things like this and our biggest event is uh we have weekly meetings on irc which everyone is invited to attend Hmm. in rust-community at 4 p.m utc on wednesdays and and we have minutes from those meetings uh online we talk about lots of things like helping out meetups around the world helping out conferences uh reaching out to uh corporate users or potential corporate users. Mm. One, one of the big things we did recently around in May, we ran a survey. A bunch of other language communities, like the Ruby community, has, has had this one survey that's been run since like 2008 with about the same questions so that you can see how the community changes over time and how opinions about different things change. And they, they usually add um, options as much as they can so that the questions are mostly the same, but some, if something new comes up, they'll add a new question. And so, so we wanted to start this with Rust. And so we ran the first community survey, mm-hmm. uh, this year and the results were really interesting. Um, one, one thing that surprised me is that we asked people what their main language is that they're coming from. And Python was actually the most, which really surprised me. Cause I don't think I, I don't think I know many, or maybe I don't know that they are Python people. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's exciting. And there were a bunch of uh, really awesome responses about what what people need to be able to adopt Rust. So, and some of those some of those are ecosystem things and community things and support in bringing in Rust into teams and things like that. So we're currently going through and and looking to reach out to current corporate users or potential corporate users to make sure we're addressing their needs. That seems important. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're doing different projects like that. And I would encourage anyone who's thinking about running a meetup uh, who would like some help or advice to come to community meetings or open an issue on our repo, which we will link in the show notes. Um, and yeah, let us know if, if you have any ideas for what the community team could be doing. Awesome. We will definitely link those. So you also recently have ended up working alongside the aforementioned Steve Klabnik on the Rust programming language, the book, as it's often called. How did you end up on that project? Okay. So as I mentioned, Steve and I had been friends for a long time. Mm -hmm. And uh, he asked me to be a technical reviewer on the book. And apparently I ended up making so many comments on the chapter I reviewed that <laughs> Steve, Steve asked me to become a co-author, which I'm super honored to be a co-author. I, like, I, I don't think I would 
write a book on my own. I don't think I would have <laughs> done that by myself, but I'm, I'm honored to be working with Steve. I love working with Steve. Um, I love the vision he's set out for the book and I'm excited to help get it to completion. Our learning styles are definitely different and mm, that helps actually. Right. Yes. Because Steve loves to know why, <laughs> know, to know like th- how things work, why things work the way mm-hmm. they do. And I'm very much a what and how kind mm-hmm. of person. Like, tell me what to type. I just want to get this. I want to, I want to do this thing. Tell me how to do this thing. And mm-hmm. I'll come back to the why when I'm ready for it, when I need it, when I, when I under, when I have something working that I can play with, Yeah. then I might want the why. But, but if I have to like read through the theory behind something before I'm allowed to use it, <laughs> like that frustrates me. So we go back and forth. And actually, I think working with Steve so much on this has, I've found myself being like, maybe we should explain why a little bit more here. <laughs> I think we're a good team. And I think the book is going to be better off for it. Yeah. But yeah, I'd, so this is the new version of the book is online on GitHub. And I am a little worried that we're, we're now tainted. Like we're now too familiar with the book. So any listeners out there who have time to read through what we have so far in this new, the new version of the book, which isn't the uh, one that's on docrustling.org, it has mm-hmm. a separate URL, since it's not complete enough to quite replace the current book at this point. Um, but I'd love readers to check out the new version and give us comments and issues, because I really want to make sure we're serving our target audience which is beginners, absolute beginners with Rust. Like you were saying, it's helpful to have words to be able to explain concepts. I really want to make sure that the book, when when you don't even know what words to search for, I wanted, I want the book to give you those words and give you a really good foundation yeah. to get you started in your Rust career. So I want to make sure we're meeting those needs. Awesome. Can you describe the big picture goal for this rewrite because i like the original version i'm happy to see new new work being done but what's the motivation for this particular rewrite of the book so the biggest motivation is that steve got a deal with no starch press they're actually going to be printing the new version sweet yeah so the the rework version is mostly to make sure the everything, all the chapters flow together. It's one cohesive thing. The chapters build on each other. Uh, print is a lot different than the web, uh, <laughs> as I'm sure everyone's aware, but it's, it's harder to like cross-reference. You can't just like right. link to another page or a definition. So, so thinking about things in those terms and making sure everything's right because it's going to be fixed on paper <laughs> and we can't just right. send in a pull request to fix it right away. Um, it, it's a lot of work to, to edit and revise and, and make sure everything makes sense. Yeah. And, and I think Steve's gotten a lot of experience teaching Rust with the current material that is making the new book a lot better, actually, mm. especially the, the ownership and borrowing chapters mm-hmm. are amazing now. Awesome. I'll have to go read them. <laughs> yes, I would highly recommend everyone read those because they're super awesome. And I'm, I'm supposed to be working on backporting them to the, mm. to the current book, but I haven't done that yet. Well, I'm glad to hear that. That should be a pretty great one. What's the estimated timeline or 
is there one? <laughs> I'm I'm not committing to anything right now. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make this agile. It'll be done when yeah. it's done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I That is perfectly fair. Yeah, this is my first book process, so I'm I'm learning a lot about you know, editing, revising, copy editing, layout. Uh, so I have, I have no idea how close we are. <laughs> yeah. I'm working on a small 30 to 40 page project that I'll talk about more when it, when it's actually out in a, a few months, hopefully even a 30 to 40 page project. There's yeah. a, I'm sitting down writing it going, these are not like the blog posts I was writing. <laughs> yeah. This is, I mean, it's kind of the same, but it's also wildly different because you can't, like you said, you can't just say, oh, I'll submit a revision. And yeah, it's a lot more pressure. On my blog, I can say, whoops, here's a typo or here's something that I got wrong. Edit so and so reminded me that blah, blah, blah. You can't do that. <laughs> yeah. So then the other big thing in the community side of things is, as you mentioned, your work with Rust Belt Rust, which is one of three major Rust conferences this year, one which just happened, RustConf. Hopefully the videos will be up soon. I'm excited to watch all of them. There's also Rust Fest happening in, I think, Germany mm -hmm. this week. And then Rust Belt Rust, care to tell us all about it? Yeah. So I'm based in Pittsburgh and I love tricking people to come to Pittsburgh. For conferences. <laughs> uh, my my ulterior motive is to show people how awesome Pittsburgh is. It's not the smoky industrial city it once was. It's really pretty. And we have a decent check scene going on here. Hmm. And of course, there's the pun opportunity with Rust Belt Rust. I just couldn't pass it up. It's pretty great. Some, some people are like, this is a horrible name. But I'm like, no, this I is, think it's this a, is great a great name. name. <laughs> I love the name. I'm I'm so attached to it. And I, I want to move it around to other Rust Belt cities in the future. Hmm. So yeah, I... I have conference organizing experience. It is a lot of work, but it isn't, it's, it's just work. It's not hard work. It's, it's just a it's lot. Just of a lot. <laughs> yeah. 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 But I have an awesome committee full of people who are helping out. Um, I've got an awesome speaker lineup. I'm, I'm excited to hear a lot of the talks. I hope I get to go hear some talks. <laughs> I'm excited to be like the East coast conference. I hope that this is useful for people who can't make it to the West Coast or to Europe. I, I hope this becomes a yearly event that people enjoy going to. I hope so, too, because I live in Raleigh, and it's a lot easier to get to the Rust Belt than to Seattle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> I could drive there. It'd be a long drive, but I could yeah. drive there. Yeah. If I tried to drive to Seattle, it would take me three days. <laughs> yeah. So I'm glad you're doing it. Now we just need one Central America conference and yeah. put it someplace like New Mexico or something or Texas or someplace like that. And that way all the, the Central U.S. people can have someplace closer to drive to. But I'm very excited that we've had not just one, but three conferences this year. That's a big, big jump and a big step. Yeah. So talk a little, if you would, about the program for Rust Belt Rust this year. Sure. So we're... It's going to be two days. Uh, the first day is a day of workshops, which there, some of them are half day, some are whole day, and are going to be smaller groups and more in-depth topics. Mm. We have eight different kind of tracks, and there's all sorts of things. Uh, ben Striegel, Beastry, is doing an intro workshop. Steve and Ashley are doing uh, intermezzos, and like an intro to operating system development in Rust. Amber Conville is doing a code retreat in Rust. Hmm. Oh, and so many more. Uh, so check out our schedule. The second day is going to be single track half hour talks. 
So the one thing I heard, so I went to rest camp last year and one reason I heard that people didn't go or almost didn't go was that they didn't feel like they knew enough about rest to get stuff out of the talks. Mm. So that was why it was important to me to have workshops on day one and then talks on day two so that people do feel like they can get things out of talk. So I think even, even if it's, it's, it goes back to the vocabulary again, right? If you don't understand everything that the speaker's talking about, but you hear the words they're using and maybe someday you hear those words again and you're like, wait, Oh, Oh, that's what they were talking about. Like, <laughs> yeah. Even if it doesn't totally make sense the first time you hear it, like mm-hmm. the repetition will help and it, it helps you to know what's out there even. Um, so even talks that have been over my head in the past, I go back to them later and it helps me to, to be able to recognize things that are the same and things that relate to each other. Um, but yeah, we're, uh, Aaron Turan's coming in from the core team to give a core team update. Um, and there's a bunch of other awesome talks again, check out our schedule because there's a lot. Um, excellent. So when is Rust Belt Rust and how might people sign up for it, et cetera? Rust Belt Rust is October 27th and 28th, and tickets are still on sale on our website. And I have a special promotional code for listeners of the New Rust Station to get 20% off tickets. The code is New Rust Station, all one word, all lowercase. And if you put that in, there's it says enter promotional code in the upper right once you uh, after you click register. And that will take the ticket price down to uh, $120 for regular tickets and $40 for students. That's pretty awesome. Thank you guys for doing that. That's exciting. You're welcome. Please, please come. Listeners, sign up for <laughs> sign up for Rust Belt Rust. We'd love to have you. Very, very fun. I wish I wish my travel budget both temporally and financially, we're not completely depleted this year because I would love to make it up there. Yeah, I totally understand. But I traveled 4,800 miles in 13 days over the last couple of weeks with small children for about 3,000 of those miles. <laughs> My budget is done. There's yeah. no more traveling. <laughs> yeah, I totally understand that. There's there's conferences like like right now that I wish I could go to, but I also... I, I was just traveling a bunch and I'm just like, I need to sit at home for a little bit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So the other big thing going on for you is that you are co-founder of the, as far as I can tell, the very first Rust consultancy. Yeah, we've we've looked and, and we're pretty sure we're the first. Um, our, our company is Integer32 and I founded it with my husband, Jake Goulding. And uh, we're getting started building our business with so one one reason that I left my job is that I didn't feel like I was learning very much. Yeah. And now I'm learning a whole lot about, <laughs> about sales and marketing and contract negotiation and finances and taxes and There's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> every once in a while I get to program too. <laughs> but yeah, I'm super excited to I feel really lucky that we're in a financial situation where we can uh, spend some time getting this started. Yeah, uh, we've had a few contracts. Uh, one, my p- favorite one so far, has been with Panoptics. They mm. contracted with us to. They do big data and mm-hmm. are using Rust in some of their tools and contracted with us to uh, add some functionality to Nickel JWT session, which is a crate that integrates JSON Web Tokens with Nickel for the Web Framework. 
Mm-hmm. And the crate was was functional, but there are some options and different ways you could do JSON web tokens, and it didn't implement all of them. So mm-hmm. they contracted with us to add the ones that they needed. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think there's a lot of crates out there right now that people got started and got it to a point where it fits their needs, right. but it's not totally general yet. So I think that's a great opportunity for developers in general, if you want to get started helping out open source, is to find something that you want to use and see if it works for you, and if not, to help add that functionality. And and yeah, if you would like to hire Integer32 to do that sort of work for you, uh, we have availability. So you mentioned desire to learn being a big part of it, but jumping out and starting a consultancy is... Uh, that's a pretty big move, especially if your your only or even primary motivation is learning. Was that it? If so, I mean, wow, you're bold. <laughs> no, that wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't the only reason. There are a lot of reasons. Um, and in some ways, it is a big risk. But in other ways, it's it's not actually. It's if your income depends on lots of little contracts and depends on lots of companies, then in a way, you're spreading out your risk and not sticking your career on one company. Yeah. So it's, I'm not sure if it's more or less risky. It's a different kind of risk. Right. Um, so I'm excited to, I, I basically want to create the company that I want to work at for the rest of my life mm. is my, my larger goal with this. And right now it's just Jake and I, and we don't have enough constant business to uh, be able to bring someone else, bring anyone else on and be able to guarantee an income. Uh, <laughs> but we hope to be able, we hope to get to that point where we can hire some other people. Yeah. And I, I feel really strongly about the people doing the work, having control over the work they're doing mm. in some sense. And there's always going to be, you know, work that you ne- don't necessarily want to do, but you need the income. Absolutely. So that's always going to be there, but being able to say, this is the level of quality we're doing. These are the kinds of things we will do, and these are the kinds of things we won't do. So I, we have written into our operating agreement that it's it's going to stay very um, collaborative and collective as far as like company direction and mm. things like that. I want everyone who's involved with our company to have a say in how the business is going. So it's it's kind of an, a really natural thing for Jake and I since we're already married and <laughs> already working collaboratively on everything. Um, so there's that. But adding more people to that will definitely be a challenge. Yeah. And I'm excited to learn to at that when we get to that point as well. I imagine there will be a, a big curve there. I've done a lot of very independent, just one-off myself kind of consulting. And the thought of having employees always... A was just not not remotely in the picture in terms of finances, but B terrified me because it's one thing to be responsible for your own and your own family's income. And that has its ups and its downs. But as you said, there's a different kind of trade-off there. You're not totally tied to the fortunes of one company. You're totally tied to your ability to go find people to pay you to do something that you're hopefully reasonably competent at. And I always felt relatively comfortable with the idea that I can go find more work if this contract dries up. But it's very different saying, okay, I have to feed my family and I have to make sure I'm getting enough income to feed these three other families too. And then picking people who are competent and all of that interviewing is hard. I've been involved very slightly on some of sort of the technical 
early interview for one employee that we have at a place I work currently. And that was fascinating and interesting. And I felt very much out of my depth. Like I, I know some good questions to ask, but I'm just a guy who writes JavaScript. Yeah. Like You want me to evaluate this other guy who writes JavaScript? And it was fine. And I learned a ton doing it, but it's a hard hard set of skills. And you mentioned all the things you're learning and very few of them are programming. I think maybe it's worth spending some time as we wrap up looking at the kinds of things that add value that aren't the code. Thoughts there? Yeah. So there's there's a ton of work that goes into an open source project that is not code. There's documentation, of course. There's uh, issue triage, just it's like taking an issue and reading through it, understanding what the problem is and creating like a, a way to reproduce that issue is so incredibly valuable. But so many people like the original filers sometimes don't do this. And then you have a bug just kind of sitting there and, and no one can do anything on it because no one knows how to reproduce it. So when people can come in and provide ways to reproduce bugs. That's so valuable. Mm -hmm. Teaching and mentoring, running meetups, running conferences are all super valuable. And I, I know this is something that Steve has talked about that I hope we can figure out because the book is now in a separate repo uh, from the main language is, is recognizing contributions to things that are not Rust Lang slash Rust on GitHub, mm -hmm. uh, and are not necessarily commits to that repo. Right. So that's definitely something we want to recognize as a community. And I think we're going to. I I would love to have someone uh, create something that I think Steve mentioned that there's a site that lists everyone who has committed to Rails, which would be a good start. Is just having like a list, mm -hmm. kind of like some of the GitHub graph views. But yeah, I would also include anyone who has ever filed an issue on any of the Rustlang repos. Anyone who, the, there's the Rustlang nursery, which are crates that are mm -hmm. almost and maybe might be someday be part of the standard library, but need to kind of be baked for a while and tested out. So the ecosystem is just as valuable to contribute to as the main language itself, yeah. um, which I think you mentioned in a previous episode. So I agree with that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like meetup organizers, we should recognize those as well. Um, Cause that provides places for people to learn places for people to talk to other people working through the same issues and people who hang out in rust beginners on IRC and answer questions. Uh, my husband, Jake, is very active on Stack Overflow. The yeah. king of Stack Overflow. He, he's addicted. <laughs> like if he goes a day or two without checking, he's like, I need to, I need to check for questions. There's questions out there. I need to, I need to check them. So, you know, that's probably a, a better addiction that someone could have out of all the addictions out there, but it's still, he's addicted. Yeah. But yeah, he, so he spends a lot of time answering questions on Stack Overflow and that's not necessarily showing up on a contribution graph anywhere, but he's helped a lot of people. So all contributions like that, even asking a question on Stack Overflow mm -hmm. is valuable because you're creating a reference for someone else to find someday. Right. So yeah, I would highly encourage everyone to contribute in whatever way you feel that you are able to, that you your talents fit with your talents, and know that the Rust community team appreciates you. And so there's this thing that the core team used to do called uh, 
friend of the tree. And I think we're, the community team is kind of going to be taking on this project and we're going to call it friend of the forest because it, the tree was like the, the main rustling repo is that, that tree, uh, but we want to kind of expand it and uh, recognize individuals who are contributing in all sorts of ways. Mm. So I think we're, we're working on getting that going again and recognizing all sorts of contributions. So know that, know that everything everyone contributes is very important to us. Yeah. What kinds of things would you like to see the Rust language and frameworks and community, either technical or communal? Where can we improve in the next year or couple of years? Um, yeah. So I'm really excited about uh, things like refactoring tools which I know is in the works and IDE support is in the works and it's a hard problem. And I think that is one of the things that perhaps Mir would make easier. I'm not sure if it fits in with that, but it's, it's going to come someday. The sooner the better. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I, I kind of, I wouldn't say love, but I'm intrigued by legacy code and I've had a lot of experience working with legacy code, some of which I wrote myself. Um, that <laughs> later future me has to deal with. And I there's this great book called uh, Working Effectively with Legacy Code by Michael Feathers. And he a lot of the techniques he espouses are like leaning on your tools, leaning on your compiler, and we already have an awesome compiler, um, but also refactoring tools. If you can do automated refactoring things like extract method or uh, extract class, extract struct, or, or uh, extract trait, would maybe be something that tools could do. The benefit of automated tools is that if if there's no bugs in the tools, then you can trust that it was done correctly. So having having tools like that that can help help you make changes to code that's that's hard to change, make to help make those changes easier. And I'm not sure if I'm not sure if we have legacy Rust code out there yet. Maybe probably in <laughs> Rust itself there's some legacy rust code yeah and i would bet tilda has some at this yeah. point so i'm again this sounds kind of strange but i'm kind of excited to see legacy rust code it'll be interesting yeah because so i'm also i'm reading uh the c programming language right now again because now i feel more empowered to understand lower level stuff and because i'm working on the rust programming language click so i kind of want to see <laughs> you know what what is this book going to be held up next to which is kind of intimidating actually but um <laughs> c has changed a lot since that book was written yeah and there's lots of legacy c out there so studying that kind of code and the change in conventions and how you deal with changing old code is is super interesting to me and and I'm excited to see how rust conventions change over time and how we how we evolve rust code how we figure out how to change rust code in the face of changing requirements and bugs and things like that so yeah I think we need time mm -hmm. to get those sorts of things we also need time to grow and I definitely think we need more eyes and we need more hands. We need more people trying things, looking at Rust, evaluating Rust, trying to use Rust for their use cases and seeing where it works, where it doesn't work to give us places to improve. And and we need more hands to helping out with every tiny little thing, even, even fixing one little bug or writing one test. Like every little bit will add up to help. Yeah. So... 
I think more eyes, more hands, and more time is what the community needs. Absolutely. And yeah, more more hours in the day wouldn't hurt either. <laughs> <laughs> but you can't always get what you want. Well, the uh, most Earth-like exoplanet we've ever found seems tidally locked, so they just have permanent days. I mean, <laughs> we could we could give. I don't know if that would help. Yeah. Though. <laughs> can we can we teach uh, the beings living on that planet to write rust? to write rust for us? <laughs> that would be great. Anything you would like to plug or point people to before we wrap up here? Uh, I think just all all my projects, uh, Integer 32, Rustlings, Rust Belt Rust, um, the book. Apparently I have a lot of projects going on. (laughs) I sympathize. Yeah. Very good. Well, thank you so much for your time and for being on New Rust Station. Thank you. You're not that new of a Rust Station anymore. I hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I did. Lots of great thoughts from Carol today. You can find links to the various topics we discussed on the episode, as well as all previous episodes, at neurastation.com. Thanks again to Chris Palmer, Daniel Collin, Rafe Levine, Stephen Morosky, and Vesa Kailavirta, as well as all the other sponsors, for helping make the show possible. You can see a full list of sponsors in the show notes and the top tier of sponsors on a dedicated page on the website. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, you can set up recurring contributions at patreon.com slash neurastation. You can also give a one-off contribution at a variety of other services, which are also listed at the show website. I'll have more to say on sponsorship specifically in an upcoming podcast episode about the podcast. You can look forward to hearing that in a week or two. You can follow the show on Twitter at NeuraStation or follow me there at Chris Kreitshow. If you enjoyed the show, please help others find it. You can rate and review it on iTunes, recommend it in another podcast directory, share it online, or, of course, you can always just tell a friend. I appreciate any and all of those. Also, please do respond on social media, in the threads for the episode on the Rust user forum, Reddit, Hacker News, etc., or via email at hello at newruststation.com. I really enjoy hearing from my listeners. Until next time, happy coding. Okay, we're recording once more, and hopefully nothing will explode this time. I'm literally quitting all the things. <laughs> I have no – like I said, I've never seen it do that uh, before, and I really am pretty well inclined to blame Skype because Skype is my least favorite program that I actually run. Was it the same thing that happened the first time? Yep. It's very strange. And it happened when I went over a particular, it happened when I went over the preview, the small version of the Skype Mm. window, I was moving my mouse and it just went, blah. (laughs) (sighs) Skype! (laughs) All right. So. Okay. I'll cue you back up. Thoughts on community? (laughs)